0: The New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalence. In everyday use today, speculation usually refers to the strategy of buying an investment in the hope that it will appreciate in value and time. Well, that's all and good. We have become used to this dimension of the markets. If it weren't for the 2009 financial markets crash, we probably wouldn't worry about the potential losses of investors gambling on speculative schemes. But why do we still rely on speculation at all when a world Gives us greater certainty about the future than any before it? Few concepts had a history as long and varied as speculation. Long before we saw speculation in the financial markets, speculations have been part of the methods of theology, epistemology, science, and philosophy. Speculation has been vain, mere, and divine, and it has given rise to manias, bubbles, crashes, and to new ways of seeing the natural world a new book by gail rogers speculation a cultural history from aristotle to ai traces some of the speculative adjectives and the intellectual histories that they represent gail rogers is chair of english at the university of pittsburgh and i'm very happy that he joins me now to discuss the book and his work welcome to the show gail
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Gail, thank you um this has been an incredibly fun book to read Partly because I was expecting at every single page to to find tips for gambling and and for card games. And <laughs> Sorry, the story itself is is incredibly rich and surprising. But before we get into any of this, I want to hear a little bit about you and about how you got into this area of research and why speculation, why now, and why you.
1: So, the project started innocently enough, as as many projects do, with a curiosity about uh, how and why we plan our futures the way that we do and how we take risks on our futures um how and why some people are willing to take risks in the ways that uh that they are and that others uh shy away from that uh, of course i did all of that before this pandemic made us think even more pointedly and uh, differently about risks and risk taking than um than we do now so um As I started thinking about this term, I started researching it, and it just kept popping up everywhere. And as I mapped it out, I saw that it mattered a great deal to Jeffrey Chaucer, to Francis Bacon, to Jane Austen, to Adam Smith, to Wall Street traders, to the people who program computers now to trade um, in high frequencies. And I thought, there's got to be a story here. There has to be a story of how and why this term means so much to so many people. And as I was writing the book, the most common question I would get when someone said, you know, what are you working on? I said, as a book, the history of the concept and practices of speculation, they would say, oh, do you mean, uh, you know, the gambling on Wall Street or do you mean thinking? And my answer was always Both. And that's exactly what I was trying to understand myself is how and why those two things were linked over time and how and why it was that for centuries, speculation meant contemplation for the most part. Um, and then long about the mid 1700s, it came to mean uh, a mode of gambling that we associate with um, risky wagers in the future and how those two became entwined and also spread out to this booming world of uh genre of speculative fiction um and to uh a world of thought that we call idle speculation that is still with us that came from calvinism to a whole other um uh modes of thinking that we still live with and um as i kept seeing that everywhere i just needed to understand what it was about speculation that feels so stigmatized immoral Um, insubstantial and risky and yet so familiar and so ingrained in everything that we do when we just buy an insurance policy we're speculating uh we do this every day and yet we don't really have an understanding of how and why we have done it for centuries and so that was essentially the the questions that i wanted to to answer um and it took 2,500 years of history to be able to do that accurately, uh, and and I still didn't even get to the card tips.
0: Well, maybe, maybe we'll have some time at the end to, to go through this <laughs> or record a special bonus. That'll be the sequel. Um, before we proceed, I want to ask you a little bit about your method and your your situation of this inquiry in in literature and also in philosophy. I also would like you to talk a little bit about your earlier work, if you can connect the two because you, you're you a scholar of translation as far as I understand. So I think it'll be interesting to to understand how How you approach this subject from that perspective?
1: So, my two abiding methodological interests have been you're right, the history of translation and translation practices, but also the history of concepts and intellectual history. And I think those two are deeply entwined because I think uh, probably what ties them together is the history of meaning and how uh, meaning changes uh, within and across languages. So, um, this book has both translation and intellectual history in it. Uh of course the word speculation passes from Greek to Latin to we think middle old French, uh to English, and then across many other languages in the course of the book. Um so uh I got to do both things that I love doing in the course of writing this book, which was really fun to do. I also got to consult with many people in fields that I don't really know very well, which for uh, Scholars like myself who love to be dilettantes of fields that we that we don't know well, uh, but in love to explore and learn about is actually quite a fun and engaging thing to do. So the book is in part a history of exactly what you said: how meaning changes. And but to me, it's also about why meaning changes. Why do we keep looking at this word "speculation" and deciding it doesn't quite mean what we want it to mean? So we need to make it mean something different. Uh, And we do this with words all the time. Um, And that's part of how societies as a whole decide, that uh, come to a consensus, that language is not functioning the way that we want it to function. And so we put ideas behind words and make them signify differently. And I think that's a profound part of cultural history, which is the field that I think uh, I'm most closely identified with.
0: Mm, well, kudos for choosing a word that start with nearly as much ambiguity as, as the way you portray speculation does. I mean, I think we we can't avoid going through some of the timeline here to to arrive at some of the questions and to arrive at some of the uncertainties that you maintain pervade until today. But we're starting we're starting with the Miranda Watchtower. I mean, that's 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 a point at which this concept could have gone really in in any direction, or at least in one of two, quite divergent divergent directions. So I think it would be great to, to give us a bit of a primer if you, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Them. So essentially, there are two similar, but uh, etymologically related, but distinct uh, terms operating in Greek and Latin. One is speculatio, uh, is the Latin concept that, that's associated with it. And the other is speculum. Um, speculatio is associated with a watchtower. Um, it comes from specula. Watchtower means to, to look out, look toward the future, so a promontory. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can think of the conceptual associations here with projection, futurity. Speculum, mirror, looking at oneself, introspection, looking at the here and now, um, looking inward those become two very different, very vital concepts in Christian theology, in classical philosophy. Boethius becomes a major figure in championing Speculatio as uh, a translation of Aristotle's Theoria, um, the -hmm. highest form of human thought, while a whole host of Christian philosophers champion the mirroring concept of speculum as actually a way of seeing god's work uh in the material world so these two are operating in intellectual history in um, theological history ecclesiastical history for centuries they're they're distinct but they also um speak to one another a great deal they they overlap in the middle ages they're they're never um fully entwined certainly but they certainly inform one another so uh by the time they come into english as this word that Geoffrey chaucer first introduces as speculation uh I'm, I'm not a scholar of medieval english so i, I can't claim to pronounce it perfectly um, in the late 1300s he clearly seems to signal boethius's version of projection mm-hmm. forward-looking theoria, looking to the divine um he he brings it into English through a translation of Boethius's *Consolation of Philosophy*, but he definitely has a hint of *speculum*, the uh, looking inward, the, the yeah. idea of introspection in it as well, too. So it's a it's a fascinating way in which language has transformed over centuries and taken in bits and pieces of writing and study and histories of thought from from disparate places in order to um, sort of accrue and accumulate meaning from from various places. And then once it gets let loose into English, it has this sort of potentiality that can go places and attach do things to it.
0: I'm kind of interested to to ask you about a couple of examples of, of these intertwinings. And one of the things you do throughout the book, which I think is really rich and, and makes it such a rewarding read, is that with every proposal you make, there's usually text which somehow manages to both prove your point and the opposite of it at the same time. In Chaucer, for, for example, you have you have kind of this opening up of all these meanings. I and mean, Chaucer, as you say, has brought so much language into into English. He could be credited with so many, you know, introducing so many different words. But I wonder if we could maybe somehow make a jump from this kind of very distinct categories of thought from Aristotle, you know, from praises and praxis and theoria. To the kind of blaring and maybe, maybe you could speculate. Sorry, I promised myself I wasn't going to make puns, I wasn't going to use this word, but it's already happened. If you could you could maybe somehow place already the practice of translation into some of these slippages that are that are happening.
1: Sure. So every every language creator, uh especially antiquity all through the middle ages is a translator of some sort. It's almost necessary. Um, So Chaucer is operating as a, as you said, as as a language creator, but also as a translator in that capacity. And um, right. I mean, it does require some speculative enterprise. We don't know exactly what he was doing. We don't know who exactly he was speaking to, who his distinct reading audience was, Mm -hmm. uh, what their, Literacy capacities were etc. So it does require a little bit of uh, piecing together what he was up to uh, when he was creating these new words. But I think you know the the, the key part there is to um, you know to understand that when when any word like this was was introduced, it was understood as you know bringing with it a whole history of theological and intellectual history behind it. This was not an innocent word to bring into English. Now, Chaucer also brought into English the word trench right around the same time. It did not exactly bring with it a whole history of, uh, now look, maybe I'm missing a whole, uh, a, something great here, but I don't think this was something that uh, Aristotle spent a great deal of time Uh, Meditating upon right, so (laughs) I probably I'll
0: probably give you that one. I'm sure soon enough we'll be reading a book. Right, I I await
1: correction, but right. So not not, (laughs) but you know the point is not every word has this sort of history behind it. Whereas Mm. Boethius had spent a great deal of time and labor specifically translating Aristotle's Theoria into Speculatio, which Chaucer translates into Speculation. Right. So there we are. We we've got a very very clear line. Now you noted something really important that happens throughout the book, which is every time there's an example, there's also some minor uh, variations and sometimes counterexamples. That's the way language operates. It's not like mm. uh, the minute we decide that we want to shift the meaning of a word, uh, that all of a sudden everyone decides the meaning of that word is changed. We see that in the present with the way that a word like queer uh, has changed over time, but has also not changed over time By generation, Uh, and you can survey generations about, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the what's the um, connotation of this word? What's the affect of this word? And you get varied answers, right? So it's linguistic change and semantic change and connotative change is never just a sort of instant pivot. Uh, It takes time, even even when it happens as quickly as it does in the present. Imagine how slowly it happened before you had you know, social media to help <laughs> accelerate the process, right? So, mm. um, so right, these are slow-moving uh, things, but part of what makes that flourish is that, you know, when Chaucer releases this word, we start to see um, dictionaries try to say, well, what does this mean? What are its equivalents in other languages? Where else can I use it? Where else can I see it? We start to see poets use it. We start to see sonneteers use it. Mm. We start to see... All sorts of writers use it and say, "What? What can I do with this word? It's sort of a piece of clay that I can shape into something different." The rules are are unbound because we don't, you know, there's not yet any kind of policing around the word. There's no um, Oxford English Dictionary, right? There's no academy that's guarding the boundaries of this word, and so one of the first really tight formations around the word uh, since what really does make. Uh, make these things stick is just repetition, comes with the printing press when you have an overwhelming majority of printed texts being from the Protestant Revolution and the Calvinists printing text after text that say idle speculation, idle speculation, idle Mm -hmm. speculation, beware idle speculation. Well, then you get an adjective that modifies this word and starts to give it shape and meaning, um, just in the same way that we see, you know, politicians now just put a modifier in front of a word so that it suddenly, suddenly, the the <laughs> noun itself gets so identified with whatever precedes it that you've, you know, characterized your opponent or whatever it is, right? So idle speculation becomes a phrase that that means useless thought. So, what used to be for Boethius and for Chaucer contemplation of a higher divine mind, a higher form of connection with what is out there and beyond from the watchtower, now becomes wasted uh, empty, vacuous thought, thought not put into action, not put into deed in the world, and that becomes immensely dangerous, as you can imagine in Protestant worldview. And that's kind of what sets into motion the plot of the rest of the book.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly interesting, though. I I kind of reading between the lines, I I almost saw a precursor to that one adjective. You know, it's not just idle speculation that, that Calvin comes up with and condemns, but you you you've talked about this kind of detachment of the idea of speculation and its opposition to practice after Chaucer. So we're talking about in the fifteenth. Fifteenth century, things kind of become very flexible, and I almost noticed sort of a transition through a moralizing dimension. Yes. So you know, I was thinking a second ago when you were talking about these modifier adjectives. You know, I was thinking about fake news that might
1: exactly be
0: examples they would have come up with. But I'm I'm sort of at the risk of being trivial. Before we have fake news in Donald Trump, we also have a crisis of public confidence in the institutions that takes quite a while before the adjective kind of comes. So while it's quite quite fun to blame everything on the Reformation, (laughs) I I think think there's some kind of you know beginner puritanism happening, happening there before. What I'd like to ask you about now is a little bit how we maybe how we begin to deal with this by now, by the Reformation, quite well-defined dichotomy of different types of Mm -hmm. knowledge. So we have, you know, in Boethius Speculation is something that's incredibly useful as a way of acquiring knowledge, but then the Reformation sort of puts a stop to that. Right, you know, speculation suddenly is not a way to 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 know God, to to create knowledge at all. This is a you know, maybe a too big a question, but how on earth do we deal with all these dichotomies in in either the history or or even trying to read read what's happening in the text that you look at?
1: Believe me, us. Yes, uh, uh the the present was very much with me as uh, as i wrote this book um and and as you surely saw this was part of uh the 20th century as well when the research that einstein was doing that max planck was doing that freud was doing was all called speculative research and was dismissed for not being empirical what happens is uh francis bacon is plodding along doing his uh Doing his work, and he wants to say, "I don't need speculation." Isaac Newton says, "I don't need hypotheses." And eventually, Bacon comes to see, and uh, this is this is in uh, Spratt's history of the the Royal Society in London as well. Um, mm-hmm. They come to see that um, there's no way for science to advance this new this new science to advance without Speculation, that they that they can be as dogged as they want to be about practical experimentation only. So practice becomes the antithesis of speculation. So practice meaning what you do in the material world with your hands, not what you do with airy ethereal thought. But there's no way for it advance, for it to advance without imaginative projection. You've got to dream up where you think the experiment is going to go. Um you've got to um imagine what the results might be. Otherwise, you're you're not really doing anything except you're not to use Bacon's preferred terms, advancing knowledge. Uh the terms that we use for this now in uh STEM fields are design and implementation. Mm. So uh speculation kind of feeds what now is design, uh the idea of Um, dreaming up prototypes and proof of concept that that's that that side of uh of the world so um as much as early science tries to follow um at first this protestant denigration of speculation and 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 it gets lampooned famously in gulliver's travels where you have the projectors of the academy at legado and they they look completely silly for just being these you know what what the way that academics are lampooned today for sitting up in an ivory tower <laughs> and thinking up jargon filled articles and books about you know fifteen syllable terms that mean nothing to nobody right um, yet uh, time and again, as I try to show throughout the early part of the book, there's the concession that science simply does not advance science simply. Remains static without speculation. And so um, that tends to be the driving force. And that kind of sets up the way that speculation comes into finance as well, which is where you have Adam Smith who models capitalism on science and says exactly the same thing, which is um, yeah. there's there's really no progress in capitalism without this engine called speculation, which is dreamers saying, I think I've got an idea for how I'm going to make a profit. And, and here's, where it's, here's where I imagine it's going to go. And so we can do all the buying and selling and trading that we want to do. But without, without a dreamed idea at, at, the, at the start of it, there's nothing.
0: But I think we still um, maybe, maybe I'm I'm in a moralizing mood today uh, because I'm going to come back to to something that again I saw I saw happening a tiny bit a bit earlier. So right after Bacon, you 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 refer to Robert Boyle, another scientist who was extolling the virtues of speculation and practice mm-hmm. who could conspire together, which is you know, theory practice. We 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 know how it works. But of course, very quickly again he goes into understand that speculations could be could be productive or unproductive, they could be good or bad. And there's this this just moral inevitability. We can't look at this term without requiring another concept by which we judge. By the time it gets to finance, and of course we've spent some time on this because it's it's what happens for the last two, three hundred years. And and we we time and again need to have some kind of moral reference point.
1: Yeah, the moral origins come from a classic Protestant Catholic divide over utility works versus deeds. That that classic debate. Uh, you know, Weber gets at this. This this, this uh, so so this kind of gets to finance really well. Um, ex post facto validation comes into play. So so is this <laughs> was was the speculation worth it? I'll tell you when 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 it's <laughs> when when we have a result, right? Or yeah. was is is are we in a bubble? We'll know if and when it crashes or it does not crash or how high it goes. Is this are we in a are we in a bubble? Well, um it's climbing. Is it how high is it going to climb? Well, if it climbs to a certain point, then it's a bubble. If it does not, then it's not. Right? So that's kind of been at play in exactly what you pointed out too. So, is this uh, um, is this speculation is this is this speculative element of scientific research valuable? Well, let's let's do the experiment, and if it works and it proves to provide some sort of social utility or a public good, then it was worth it. And if it fails, this is something that Daniel Defoe railed against all the time. Then um, uh, if it fails, then no, it was not worth it. Uh, well, okay, but how did we know until we did it, right? Uh, I mean, that, that's putting a lot of trust in the scientific exactly. Research. We know it
0: doesn't always work out to everyone's advantage. Exactly,
1: but but you do get you do eventually you do develop a common thread. and This is something that other scholars have written about really well. You do develop a a, a common um, a common consensus over time that if you can trust the methods and you can trust. Mm. Um, enough of a public investment in the methods, then failure is worth it. It's the, the byproducts of failure are okay as long as the methods are sound. So you don't invest in trying to build the tower of Babel over and over. But if you do invest in things that are sound and seem worthwhile and they don't work out, that's okay as long as the speculation was based on pretty sound, principles and just was trying to advance knowledge. So so it's an attempt to and this this goes back to what what you were getting at, right? It's an attempt to kind of rein in speculation, put some guardrails on speculation by way of what's already worked and what's already been proven. So speculation can only be can only take place within the boundaries of what's already plausible. Now if you go back to where speculation began with Aristotle, with Boethius, with Chaucer. They would hate this. They would say, no, speculation is <laughs> to reach the summit of human knowledge. Don't put, don't put shackles on it from the start. Otherwise, you're never going to reach the divine, right? Why would you start speculation by saying, uh, I'm going to speculate by, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop when I reach the city limits? That's that's a terrible way to speculate.
0: I would I would probably insert at this point my my own experience of working a little bit in financial services. Were oh interesting speculation speculation is 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 the daily currency. Sure. The the mantra the mantra of the bubble is not we'll find out. The mantra of the bubble is this time it's different.
1: Of course, yeah. <laughs> that's the gambler's the, so,
0: right. So actually, this is this is incredibly interesting as a way to. To go back to the beginnings of all these financial speculations because you put a lot on well on smith and also you know, you found in your book you found america on speculation and financial speculation and it really strikes me that actually the stakes in both those deployments are incredibly high and mm-hmm. the method is incredibly young so it's not like like you know we're not we're not playing the stock market today with right New technologies. We we are funding countries. We are issuing war debt for the first time yep, ever. We yep. are really creating imagination of you know things like a better future, really from from nowhere, and incredibly quick, quickly we're spreading these these concepts to the wider populace. So maybe take us over the pond and sure. and and induct your country. We're speaking a day after Independence Day, so maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe you're in the mood to reflect on. Why speculation in America are so so closely linked together
1: so you're exactly right um and uh, some historians have written about this in much more detail than 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 I have, but you're exactly right that the speculative schemes on which this country was were was founded were were novel, innovative, and untested. This was not tried and true capitalism built um on tested systems, um, there were all sorts of wild, wild schemes taking place. Some were incredibly successful and some were um, massive failures. Um, but, uh, but part of what happened was that uh, the U.S. got associated with a certain type of speculative behavior, both in the minds of Europeans and in the English, but also in our own minds. And so something that feels very familiar, very common to us now, speculative manias the idea that speculations happen as a frenzy, that people who are speculating get into a craze and follow this sort of groupthink and crowd-like behavior. That was almost unheard of before 1790, 1788 to 1790. Certainly before that, speculative episodes, such as the dutch tulip bubble the south sea bubble in 1720 in england certainly were condemned as deceitful uh Mm. the people who participated in them were seen as uh lemmings jumping off the cliff but they were not seen as irrational crazed maniacs they were seen as individuals who made bad decisions made silly uh deceitful um stupid decisions but um It was only through one of our founding figures, Benjamin Rush, who was um, a Surgeon General of the uh, Continental Army and wrote extensively about um, mental conditions, wrote an article that got reproduced um, all over um, uh, newspapers and uh, journals of the time, in which he classified speculation as a mania. Uh, And this is one of the... uh, early moments in, in medical history of or, uh, a really uh, kind of fulcrum moment in thinking about what manias were mm. and uh, it gets picked up and very, very um, persuasively people begin to label speculative episodes as manias. And so we have the first one mm. in, uh, I believe it was the summer of 1791. I might be off by a year or two in Philadelphia uh, with Scripomania as it was called. Um, with scrip, script, which was subscriptions, basically certificates to pay uh, soldiers who had served in the Continental Army and uh, were owed money. And they would just sell those certificates rather than waiting to get paid. And uh, there became a market in those certificates. And that became an inflationary market and the value in those skyrocketed. And so rather than just seeing that as yet another bubble, or yet another um, you know, silly financial episode, it became called Scrippomania. It was called a madness. It was mm. called a frenzy. Um, and ever since then, every episode like that has been called a mania, of railway mania, canal mania, egg mania. We've had a butter mania. Uh, and now <laughs> in the moment, in the present, we have <laughs> NFT mania, GameStop mania, um, meme stock mania. You know all this, right?
0: So, well, thankfully, the NFT menu is all over now. Oh. <laughs> we've, dealt, we've dealt with that. you were late a little bit. <laughs> uh,
1: well, uh, I think I might have missed my chance on that one. So, Sorry. so we, um, so, so America gets associated not only with new modes of speculation and the founding of a country, but also with maniacal speculation. So what does every president? And I quote quite a number of them uh, mm-hmm. in their State of the Union addresses and their farewell addresses. What what do they all say? I'm going to stop this spirit of speculation that has infected our uh, country. So it's a spirit. <laughs> it's not. It's it's not, it's this ethereal thing that passes from mind to mind, contagiously like an epidemic. Right. It's no longer just individual judgment making bad decisions. It's this um, strangely infectious mental disease. Uh, And every one of them suddenly says they're all going to stop it. And when they leave office, they all claim that they stopped it. And yet the next president says, oh, it's back. I've got to stop it. (laughs) And so so it becomes a really uh, signal American thing that has to be dealt with. And we see it again and again. Um, And uh, we see it in the present as a way that we characterize uh, speculations. And one of my real sort of disagreements with that is that I, I just, I simply don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's accurate at oh. all. Uh, I think the GameStop mania, for example, as it's been called, and I, I, could, I could pull up 15 different headlines that have called it a craze and a mm-hmm. mania, I think was actually a quite highly coordinated, quite um, actively and soundly executed plan. I don't see at all what was maniacal mm. about that. Um, I think it was... From all the looks of it, I mean does it was it risky, certainly, but I don't see how anyone well, maybe some people, but i don't it does not look to me like irrational, crazed, maniacal behavior. It looks like some people made a plan and followed it, and I think that's the way that actually a lot of these things happen, and so um, I think it's a moment for us to sort of pause and look back and and think about why it is that we Habitually call speculations crazes and manias and frenzies when maybe that's actually not what's happening and maybe we're just being a little lazy in doing that. Oh, that's super interesting. I'm, along along
0: the the trajectory of the book, there's clearly enough evidence of you know, not not all these manias going completely wrong. It's not you don't present us with a catalogue of one disaster after another. Right, just to kind of go with with your your own thinking about this, I was I was drawn in by this description, as as you were, as a non-American, but you know, once you kind of see the America's idea of this speculative haven in which you go and try out your luck, however poorly founded your ideas are, right. it, it sort of makes sense. It's part of the mythology of the country. But one thing that you did that was really interesting is you almost brought it into parallel with um, some of the speculations in the French Revolution, which we're not exactly one for one, but there is something there because France, of course, decompresses from its kind of revolutionary mania very reasonably quickly. You know, it's, it definitely hasn't maintained any of that ethos now. It's not, it's, not, you know, it's not a crazy place in which people go and speculate to their heart's content. So I wonder whether, whether that's something that we could dwell on for a moment, or maybe think a little bit about how other languages and other literatures deal with those concepts in parallel.
1: That's a really good one. So um, one small detail that I that I found in my research that I loved was in, I believe it was one of the books that um, Elizabeth Fox Genovese and Eugenia Genovese co-wrote. It could have just been one of the two of them. I can't remember exactly. Um, one of their histories of France had just a small detail that the French used to refer to their Antillean possessions as uh, speculations. But that's what they referred to. The, to they refer to the islands themselves as speculations, yeah. right? So they, 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 they imagined them the way that, that a trader might imagine oh. speculative assets. And I thought that was, that was a brilliant way of aligning colonial possessions as fluctuating bubble-like assets. You know that that was accurate because of the ways in which, of course, the the material resources that they were extracting from them did fluctuate wildly, uh, with wars, revolutions, uh, rebellions, etc. So um, that's there, and examples like that are there all the time. There's some other. Uh, there were some fascinating moments where the term seems to spread, even though speculation comes into English from Romance languages. Um, English seems to give it back to romance languages after Adam Smith. So Smith's, <laughs> Smith's term seems to give it the, the, the most powerful sense of risky financial gambling. Um, and yet at the same time, there was a uh, Dutch Jewish uh, writer, um, Isaac de Pinto, um, who wrote a, a much translated um, theory of credit. That was translated into English in the 1760s. I believe he originally wrote it in French, and that talked about speculation a good bit. That might have influenced uh, Smith. So there was a, a lot of good exchange. It's really tough to kind of get the causality of mm. you know who was influencing who. You know, Smith himself had been in uh, Switzerland and France uh, just before writing *Wealth of Nations*, uh, meeting with the Physiocrats. So. You know, if I were a a, a detective and, and could and and could really get all the way down to, to who used it first and who influenced who, I would love to. This is one of those those great paper trails that will probably never 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 settle completely. Um, it seems to come through through Goethe in German, and I'm not 100 percent sure, but right around everything does. I know, Eventually, right, right? Everything <laughs> traces to Goethe. Shocker, right? So, but right around <laughs> the same time as well. Um, so uh so there seems to be um kind of a flurry of linguistic um, exchange right around the same moment in the late 1700s. The really interesting plot line that's beneath all of that is that the sense of speculation that Smith imports into English that he really that he really wants to accentuate comes from gambling and smuggling, so he doesn't he doesn't want simply to to have speculation mean high risk finance or riskier than normal propositions that one might take within capitalism. He really wants it to be a tainted term in mm-hmm. in in his uh, political economy, both because of the risk that he just saw the Air Bank take in his own Scottish uh, context, but also because of uh, what he'd been reading in financial reporting and journalism from the 1750s onward. And so he was picking the term up from where it had been used for tea smugglers um, hmm. and uh, others who were trying to you know dodge taxes basically. and so they had been called speculators, and that had been called speculation, speculation and rum trading and things like that. So uh, they were they were gamblers, and they, they were associated with the itch of gambling or the addiction of gambling. so that um, that's part of what Adam Smith is trying to bring into the lang- to the English language in much the same way that Jeffrey Chaucer was trying to bring in some of the uh, additional senses of speculum that had been developed across the middle ages and in, in high theology. So um, it, that that's, to me, that's kind of one of the beautiful ways that linguistic um, change can operate is that uh, when someone has a platform to disseminate a broad sense, a broad connotative sense of a word. um, And, you know, Wealth of Nations, of course, is this international bestseller, massively influential. They can do a lot with that term. And he uses the term many, many times in uh, Wealth of Nations. Um, They can do a lot with that term and work it over and shape it into multiple forms in ways that um, someone who used it more routinely perhaps wouldn't have the the means or capacities to do.
0: Yeah, and yet again we have this kind of moralizing principle emerging while while Smith is definitely trying to you know have his wicked way with speculation and he sees it as incredibly useful for his ideas of the economy he still wants to he still wants to wag a finger at at the wrong type of speculation
1: you know this is this is one of the headlines for me of writing this book is that nobody ever uses the term speculation neutrally. <laughs> this is what part of what amazes me about this book is it's it's almost like the term justice, right? No one can use no one can say justice neutrally, right? Everyone who says it has something, has some idea behind what they mean by it. And yet speculation, which seems far less loaded than justice, it's actually exactly the same. No one, no one means nothing by it.
0: So is there a relationship with with understandings of risk. I mean, you you mentioned risk straight straight to the top of the conversation as one of the things that interested you in in looking at this intellectual history. And I, I come back to this word because we have you know, science now about the public understanding of risk. We have actuarial science. Right. We we don't necessarily talk about speculation when it comes to insurance, even though it's clear from the, from early work and the things that you cite that. Those concepts are really close together, but we we have preset attitudes towards risk, and I think that to a certain extent, really has trained us to be able to accept certain types of risk without necessarily questioning those kind of frictions. That maybe the word speculation, while it potentially means something very similar, has never really shed. I, I was interested into to, I was interested in looking at the explosion of the financial market speculation in the US with the advent of the ticker tape. And particularly, again, think about risk, thinking about ways in which financial instruments themselves are created, particularly to introduce risk, to introduce speculation. So I'm not just talking about gambling on a stock market. I'm talking about early forms of derivatives and financial arrangements that actually make the world more complicated with the idea of extracting gain?
1: That's a great question. So one of the most common uh, introductions to risk that people have is uh, when they get a job and they get a retirement uh, mm. account. And you go and you, you sit down with the uh, retirement advisor and you choose your retirement portfolio based on your risk tolerance. And they've got that little mm-hmm. wheel or that little semicircle that says, what's your risk tolerance? Aggressive, moderate, or conservative, right? And you're exactly right. People are okay with using the term risk there. Now, what if that, instead of saying, you know, risk tolerance, what if it said speculator? (laughs) What kind of speculator are you? People would think very differently about that because no one wants to be a speculator because um, as you have stressed here, it's it's a moral judgment, right? It's not a it's not a neutral term. It's, uh, you would feel like you're being judged. (laughs) Your character is being judged there rather than just, um, are you, you know, how do you want to invest? It's up to you. Right. So, um, but the fact is that speculation and risk as concepts have been deeply entwined, especially in the last 160, 180 years in, um, in all sorts of ways in stock markets in thinking about um, technology, machine technologies, nuclear technologies, um, in thinking about futurism, future technologies in artificial intelligence technologies, the two have become speculation the risk has become its uh, twin concept more than any other concept that was not present two thousand mm-hmm. years ago, one thousand years ago, etc so that's been the major um, turning point for it that it's deep imbrication with capitalism has changed and so uh john levy's book uh freaks of fortune is probably the best history of this um the the history of risk in modern capitalism and he's got some great um examples of exactly what you say how the explosion of trading in the chicago board of trade um in the 1860s 1870s with futures contract there's uh there's some incredible statistic where something you know trillions of contracts uh, trillions of trillions of bushels of wheat are traded and yet only a few billion are ever actually delivered right so it's all about the future being bought sold packaged and profited upon by derivatives products for which the material object which to kind of add another layer of uh, irony to this is a life sustaining mm. grain is a secondary or tertiary consideration that has fundamentally changed things especially when the derivatives are so complex that n- the modern person is not even sure what it is that's being traded i mean you have derivatives that are just completely unintelligible to um the layman so that you're not um and, and they're being traded by algorithms so that you know if you were to sit someone down and say here here are some major trades that are shaping the stock market which your retirement portfolio um <laughs> depends on <laughs> they're you know quite discomforted by that. That of course is a major instance of what speculation is and what it means now. And for a good reason, that gives a lot of people uh, anxiety.
0: Mm. I'm trying. I'm trying to think about my times in financial services. Where actually, this yeah, speculation was the the, the nice bit, you know, like being able to being able to sell the dream was was the fun bit. The actual performance of the contract (laughs) was always was always left somewhere else. And of course, and of course, we have this kind of slightly strange and not necessarily correct readings of say the 2008 financial crisis in which infamously even the traders didn't understand what they were trading i mean that's not that's that's a very simplistic reading of of a cultural history of an event that had multiple inputs into it and
1: sure well one of the i mean part of what fascinated me though in, in in writing the book was this arc where we go from speculation as the the, the peak and the summit of human mental aspirations and loftiness in Boethius to what some would argue is not human at all, which is computational machine driven trading. Uh, I make the argument that that's, that's not quite accurate. Uh, there's still human inputs, there's still human programming, there's still, you know, right. So um, we don't want to say it's entirely inhuman, but it's certainly um, not fully human. So there's, there's, there's a really interesting arc there that we need to, to trace over history, and we need to think about what it means for us to think about the ways in which speculation, at least in quantity, is <laughs> largely taking place without our minds. Yet at the same time, uh, there's also 7 billion of us who are all speculating in this other way, which is thinking, dreaming, contemplating, purchasing insurance policies that, uh, protect us against future unknowns, taking risks, hedging, doing all sorts of other speculating. So how that quantity measures up in unquantifiable ways against what's happening in flash trading is something that we, I don't know how to, I mean, this is the sort of speculative ending of my book, which is I just don't know what to do with that. And, uh, the the you know where this this might appeal to you is uh, given your own uh, history is like where 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 this book really started where I got this from was in Tom McCarthy's uh, Remainder, where the unnamed narrator wins this lump sum he goes and invests it, and he wants to understand how speculation works, and he goes to a financial advisor and he says I want to put all my money in the stock market and he says well what you know what makes the stock market stay up. And the advisor says, well, all these people think that, uh, that, uh, that assets have value. And he says, well, what if they stop thinking it? Oh, well, then they go down. And he says, well, they go down. We want to lose all my money. And he says, well, yeah, <laughs> but we don't think that'll happen. So uh, that's But that's basically it. It's collective, collective imagination projects things upwards and sustains them. But what is that? It's, it's, it's this ethereal, airy force that Calvin... Condemned <laughs> is actually what's suspending the Dow Jones industrial average up there <laughs> at thirty four thousand or whatever it is is that's exactly it, so it is working it's not at all idle, but that's um there it is right, and so that was sort of the fundamental irony that I thought um. I, uh, that I thought I needed to start digging into I if I was
0: going to write write this book I probably would have also started with a Tom McCarthy novel but a different one and you have a blurb at the back of your of your book uh, from Tom and he's, he's there cited as the author of Saturn Island and Saturn yes. Island is at risk of completely taking us away from your topic Saturn Island yes. is in my memory a novel in which something like a Quang or an advertising agency or this kind of weird, shadowy, advisory organization, Mm -hmm. the company, company. tries to advise the world or a government on the implementation of the Koop Sassen project. The Koop project is referred yep. to dozens of times in the book without any explanation whatsoever. It's clear that you know Tim McCarthy, but I happen to know the Koop Sassen, so I know what the project is, oh. and I can attest
1: you, you mean you? you know I know the, the artist.
0: artist, and I've in, I've engaged oh. with the project. I've spent I've spent three oh, days in Jersey trying to look at at sketches of the project and figure out what it's going what's going on.
1: Oh, great! I've I've it's, never seen um, the project. That's great. It's
0: speculative. <laughs> I can tell you, it, oh, is, you it is more good. speculative than extant for sure. So, I think I think you you took a great starting point. Okay, so one of the one of the things that you do throughout the book, which I think is beautifully interesting, between all these examples of you know Smith and all these kind of technical texts and capitalism and and American projecting and pro- prospecting, is the novel. We have well, we definitely have Swift who has a go at at capitalism and, and and prospecting, but we also have Jane Austen, and we have a whole chapter that looks at a rather unexpected history of women speculators. So, I mean, we have, we have, of course, this kind of introduction in which women are not allowed to do one thing after another, but actually quite a lot of very, very surprisingly clear approaches to to both the markets and speculative freedoms.
1: So, one of the great discoveries for me in this was the ways in which speculation operated as um, a keyword for communities, uh, in this case, communities of women investors or women speculators, depending on how you read Mm -hmm. them. (laughs) This is one of the great debates. And uh, women novelists, women poets, um, and in the present, women investors were limited in certain ways and yet had great freedom in other ways. So what used to be called spinsters had uh, degrees of, of autonomy as investors since they... Did not have husbands who controlled their um, their money or their decision making, that would probably surprise most current onlookers, and and made some quite risky bets. Uh, and then other times, I you know, I, I cite this throughout the book. I discover these uh, diarists from the eighteen uh, hundreds who are constantly frustrated that their husbands won't let them <laughs> invest in. Risky silver mines in Peru, or uh, or whatever it is, right? Um, but probably the most um, compelling figures that um, that I think uh, people should know more about are the Claflin sisters, who opened the first woman-owned brokerage on Wall Street in 1870. And uh, and why they're interesting is not just for you know what they did in, in history, but also the way that they get characterized. What were they called? They were called witches. <laughs> Where did they come from? What was their history? Well, they were, and there's, there's no two ways about this, they were frauds. Their history was that they had um, traveled around the Midwest doing magnetic healing, uh, which of course was fake, and they would dupe people and pretend to, and they were clairvoyants. Their father was a snake oil salesman and medical quack, et so, you So know, they came by this quite naturally, but they were very successful. But they took this to Wall Street. Now, why was this a natural um, transition for them because Wall Street at the time it was an entirely normal to read horoscopes for financial advice. The idea that you, that one would read masses of data from corporate uh, quarterly earnings reports, or that you would consult P/E ratios and <laughs> things like that, is 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 very new. Very com- uh, This this is this was not at all common in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, or if it was it, it was commonly to a certain class and investment itself was was limited to a very very small percentage of americans too so they were speaking to a very small crowd and the crowd that saw them and saw their successes immediately labeled them as some sort of um they were called the bewitching brokers <laughs> in a famous cartoon from uh, harper's but all the while you have these uh, novelists such as Jane Austen has this really amazing scene in Mansfield Park where characters are trying to sort out both marriage plots and speculative financing of rehabilitating uh, a house and uh, their futures around a card game <laughs> which developed in the early 1800s called Speculation. Oh, no. it, was a, it was a version of Whist. Huh which was a kind of a, a leisure class card game. And it was, it, was a, it was a high risk card game where you had to sort of guess what your opponent was holding, and you had to make really dramatic plays. Uh, so um, I'm kind of determined to, to get some people together and learn how to play this <laughs> game and, and, and re reinitiate it. So they play Speculation. Uh, it was this game that uh, Austin loved herself. And then you, you see um, episodes such as uh, George Eliot. You have, uh, you have characters who constantly are as, associate gambling and marriage plots. right? Mm-hmm. Or um, the idea that um, uh, we, we see this in, uh, in Kate Chopin as well, where the idea that um, marriage is a speculation of some type or the formulation of the marriage plot in a novel is a gamble of some type. The language gets bound up together. Um, they work in the language of manias. They work in the language of fevers, of crazes. They have their characters, have fevers and go crazy, etc. All of this gets bound together in a way that you know. I kind of trace this out in the book. Um, that you see that this is something that's being passed along as a tradition within women novelists, especially across the 1800s, and. Um, to my mind, what this leads up to is the ways in which speculation is also operating now, as we see in communities that are trying to say, let's reclaim the term speculation. Mm-hmm. So speculation, when we think of it, we think of the domination of finance capitalism. Why? Why can't speculation mean dreaming up other worlds than the one that you know dominates? multinational global capitalism has created. Um, and so uh, you know, the critic Fred Moten has talked about speculative practice. Cydia Hartman has just written a very, very fascinating book that she calls a speculative history. Amy Bong has written um, a book about um, migrants and speculative histories that they are creating and writing. Um, so why not start from the edges, minoritized communities, communities of color, oppressed communities, and understand speculation as beginning there rather than speculation as beginning from the centers of power and the centers of flows of uh, of capital and of finance. And if we start there and try to flip or invert what speculation is or what speculation can do and try to reclaim the imaginative power and the imaginative force of it, we actually kind of get back to where we started with and Aristotle, and not to the machine-driven algorithm speculation that continues the, uh, you know, the 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 further reach of um, of multinational capitalism, which is what they are um, trying to kind of resist as a homogenizing force.
0: Yeah, and one of the one of the nice vignettes in the book is, is this idea that by the early twentieth century, speculation becomes a tool of feminist strategies of emancipation. So. There, there is precedent for this, this kind of thinking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, girl This is the, the the book has been a lot of Thank fun. Thank you. I've been very well entertained despite the lack of cart, cart, trick tips in in our conversation. Um, I want to ask you before before I let you go about your your future research plans. Where where is this going? You've got your West performances and that that research project, but presumably you're also going to be treating us to a new book.
1: Well, uh, a new book is uh, <laughs> will take some time. I still have more that I want to say about risk and risk assessment, actually. Um, so I finished this book the very, very end of it amid the pandemic. Uh, and as you can imagine, I, I, I realized I had much more to say about risk assessment and and the ways in which risk is imagined than I could possibly fit in this book. So this book risk becomes a major player in it in the final two, two and a half chapters. But um, I've got a lot more that I, that I want to say. And, um, and uh, I've started to learn stats, which is something that uh, (laughs) I think all of us have started to learn in some way, uh, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, And so uh, that's, that's kind of where I'm headed next right now. Uh, I don't know how, how large this, this is. I'm writing some shorter things on it right now. Um, so that's part of what I want to try to figure out first is uh, what else I want to say about, about risk that's an outgrowth of this work, but it'll be distinct from it, certainly. Um, th- these are just some pieces that I, that I want to try to wrap my head around before I, before I fully leave behind the world of, uh, of speculative risk. Uh, and then where I will go from there uh is it is an, uh as 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 Asquith said uh once, uh, is a remote inspectative future.
0: I was I was expecting a pun to finish a conversation, but you, you wrapped <laughs> it up incredibly eloquently. <laughs> Gail, thank you so much for joining thank me. Thank
1: you for having me. This was really wonderful. I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Speculation A Cultural History from Aristotle to AI by Gail Rogers is published by Columbia University Press. I'm Pierre Dalence, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.